You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Roger Hurst from the UK. But first, Nick Correa with some additional stories. Thanks, Ash. Yesterday, I discussed the 1957 pandemic, and today I'll talk about the third pandemic that occurred in the 20th century, the pandemic of 1968. Like 1957, the 1968 pandemic was also caused by a novel strain of influenza A virus, variant H3N2, and it was colloquially referred to as Hong Kong flu, as the first recorded outbreak was in Hong Kong on July 13, 1968. Only a couple of weeks after that, extensive outbreaks were reported in Vietnam and Singapore, and by September, the virus spread to India, the Philippines, Australia, and Europe. By then, the virus arrived in California after the soldiers in the Vietnam War returned to the U.S. The virus became widespread in America by December, and in the following year, 1969, it had spread to Japan, Africa, and South America. The winter of 1968-69 is when worldwide deaths peaked. The second wave in 1969-1970 was deadlier in many countries as seen through excess mortality, including England and Wales, France, and Australia. Even though economic activity was not restricted like it has been today during the coronavirus outbreak, Economic activity was still largely impacted due to high levels of absenteeism because workers were falling ill or dying. For example, a report in the Wall Street Journal wrote that in 1969, British postal services and train services, as well as French manufacturing, suffered from major disruption because people were absent from work. The CDC estimates that about 1 million people died worldwide from this outbreak, and that in the U.S., about 100,000 people died, with most excess deaths being for those who were 65 and older. At the time, the U.S. population was in total slightly over 200 million. Hong Kong flu is considered to be a milder pandemic that occurred in the 20th century because it had a lower death rate than others, and a vaccine was quickly developed. However, by the time the vaccine was fully developed, most countries were suffering from a second peak, and the vaccine wasn't widely available. Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and lecturer on journalism at City University London, released an article last week discussing how we can frame our understanding of why there weren't major restrictions of economic activity for the pandemics of 1918, 1957, and 1968, and perhaps why our national responses have been different now. The medical community, up until mid-19th century, didn't use the term pandemic, and Victorian epidemiology and lack of the science of vital statistics made physicians more skeptical and indifferent to influenza's effects. The progress in science of epidemiology and vital statistics equipped the medical community with more knowledge for public guidance, and the expansion of telegraphic communications, forging the way for the modern age of media, started allowing the spread of information and the fear that came as a consequence of reporting on outbreaks. Media reporting on outbreaks was crucial, though, because as mentioned yesterday, the New York Times reported on the Asian flu outbreak that occurred in Hong Kong in 1957. That was important because the World Health Organization actually missed the initial signal of this outbreak, and influenza experts only knew about it because the New York Times wrote that article. In 2020, there are so many sources of information available, online news, Twitter, YouTube, even Facebook. That's why there's been a greater pressure on public officials and authorities to act, 
So that's a probable influence as to why our response to COVID-19 was so swift and economically disruptive. If we look back at 1957 and 68, public health authorities in the US and the UK weren't nearly as compelled to mitigate the influenza viruses head on. The German government also downplayed how lethal the Hong Kong flu was in 1968. Instead of suppressing the spread of the virus, their strategies were to focus on vaccination, but vaccines arrived too late during the 1957 and 68 pandemics to make a difference. The response we've seen in 2020 has been much more rigorous. Was shutting down the world economy the best move from a humanitarian and economic standpoint during this pandemic? No one knows that answer yet. However, history does provide some interesting insight into how we've dealt with pandemics in the past, as opposed to today, and raises question about how pandemics affect economies regardless of our response. And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ash. Welcome back, Roger. Welcome, Ash. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Roger, what are you looking at? Well, there's a lot going on at the moment in markets. I mean, today and the last few days has been a lot of stuff we've got to keep our eyes on. And I think today was uh, or is panning out to be, particularly in Europe, and I think over in the US as well, a day when we started to see a flow over into every other aspect of the economy now starting to price in growth. So what we saw today was very much a shift away from the old narrative that we've seen for the last two months, which is just the NASDAQ outperforming everything else, and now into pretty much everything which is high beta growth, effectively, if you said um, inflation, but not high inflation, but inflation as in growth inflation, all of those sorts of assets perform. So you know, to put it into the actual um, areas, we saw the, the Russell 2000, so small caps, outperforming large caps, and, and the NASDAQ. We saw Europe outperforming the US, which has been fairly rare, but has happened quite aggressively over the last two or three sessions. We saw bond yields moving. I think that's a big one that we've got to watch. And we've seen an extension of the dollar weakness and particularly euro strength. But emerging market FX in particular has been doing well. The Brazilian rail was up um, 3% today, or dollar rail was down 3%. We saw 2% off in gold. And I think that's a reaction to real yields with those yields going higher. There's an inverse relationship between real yields and gold. So when real yields go up, golds go, gold goes down. That was off 2% when I last looked. So all of that is, is the market sort of saying, well, it's starting to price in. Actually, maybe this is okay. Maybe there is. We can return to some form of growth from where we were rather than just saying we can only buy tech stocks. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. Uh, Mark Zandi, chief uh, economist over at Moody's Analytics, came out a few minutes ago, just crossed the wire, saying the COVID-19 recession is over. Look, I think the, the thing here is that the deep recession is over, but it's the fallout. And I think you know one thing that um, I've talked about for a long time, and I talked about this back in November and about how the um, risk assets were really being driven by liquidity. A lot of people disagree with that, but I think everyone now agrees, based on what we've seen, particularly in US risk assets, that liquidity is a very, very key driver. But the point here is it's not so much here today, it's, it's actually what happens and transpires over the next few months. And more importantly is, and I've talked about this a couple of times now in the last few weeks, which is we're going to get what looks like a V-shaped recovery from the lows. And that's what we're seeing. So people are now seeing a V, but it's where the terminal point of that recovery ends up. Will it be in line with where we were before? Will it be above or will it be below? And my feeling is still it will be some way below and that balance sheets are still impacted in a way that we're going to see people dealing with that for many months and probably years to come. Yeah, you know, I was talking about this with Ed yesterday on the Daily Briefing. It's the, there are a million different names for this, the checkmark recovery, the square root sign recovery that we talk about, the terminal point of recovery, all of these different ideas basically describing the same phenomenon, which is when uh, the market sold off sharply, when the economy contracted sharply, uh, we're not going to get back up to the point we were at prior 
to the crisis immediately. No, and this is where it becomes this sort of fascinating world, which is the economy gets back to something significantly below where it was, but some risk assets go beyond, which shows you inherently that there is a dislocation there, there is an inefficiency there. And the way I look at this is that, you know, you think about you know, the, the government transfers, and if those government transfers are going into the equity market, some of them are going obviously to the right places, but this isn't free money. So where's it going to come from in the future? It either comes from a slower future growth or it comes from higher taxes, which is a slower future growth. But either you're, you're stealing future growth or you're going to see taxes rise in order to pay for this. So it's it's kind of one of those things where this is not a free lunch, because otherwise you'd have this ridiculous scenario where you go, what we really need to see things get better is something really, really bad, which is yeah. utterly ridiculous. But in some ways, that's what we're sort of seeing some risk assets pricing. But remember, primarily it's the US equity market and a certain part of that equity market, which is really pricing this, the rest is still going back to what is normally a classic rebound, 62%. Most things are only just getting there. And in Europe, still a long way off. I think we're 50% now on the FTSE. So, you know, holding some UK equities, I'm still down in the dumps at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I think we're about 1.5% from the top on the NASDAQ. We were talking a little bit earlier uh, offline about uh, the rotation back into the NASDAQ. You know, obviously, we've seen... Uh, really spectacular gains uh, in, in tech stocks in terms of this rebound, um, relatively narrow concentration. And now there seems to be a, a rotation back into broader markets. What are your thoughts about that? Well, this is when the market becomes a little bit more comfortable with the recovery that we've had. So this is where, you know, we, what we always talk about is, you know, when you want to see, or if you want to see things, confidence coming back, which often can be a contrarian indicator, you need to see things broaden out. You can't just have you know to infinity and beyond in five stocks, and those five stocks. Um, I think it was Goldman Sachs had had the numbers, which was the five stocks are 15% up. I think it is, or might be 18% up um, year to date. So not from the highs year to date, versus the rest of the market was down 8%. Now this was last week, so it's a little bit different now. With the overall S&P down 5% year to date at that point, so it was still all about those those stocks. That's beginning to be unwound a little bit now. When I say unwound, it's actually the others are now starting to catch up a little bit. But it's a rotation where people are thinking, okay, the worst is behind this because this was a liquidity event. That's the case. The liquidity event has been sold because we saw that in 2008. They acted very, very swiftly this time around. It's whether you believe there is a solvency event coming. And something that I talked about in the Refinitiv program that we did yesterday was my biggest concern is that we have both a an expansion of zombie industries in the large caps that can get hold of liquidity, whilst we have a significant number of bankruptcies in the small businesses, family businesses that can't get hold of this liquidity. Worst of both worlds, bankruptcies in the engine of growth, zombies in the place that was already dragging growth prior to COVID. If you get that, then future growth is going to be sluggish once again. And so therefore, this is just a, a bifurcation. It's, it's just a, the inequality gets worse because certain risk assets go up whilst the economy remains relatively sluggish. Yeah, and that's just the macroeconomic impact, right? There's also the, the hollowing out of society when you see family businesses uh, being destroyed, what it does to neighborhoods, what it does to cities uh, where progressively more people have moved. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, we're just seeing something which this has been going on for 10 years. It's probably been going on for longer, but, you know, we had, it's a kind of, you know, a, a bit of a crass sort of um, kind of, an, not an analogy, but an idea, but there was probably a point of optimal inequality because we always have inequality. But there's a point where you have inequality where people think they have mobility upwards and the difference between, you know, the bottom and the top is not so wide. And that was probably sometime in the 1990s for a lot of, a lot of Western economies. 
clearly sometime over the last 10 years, we got way past optimal inequality to the point where you felt that there were some very, very clear winners. And we know that. And the whole corporate setup was all about juicing corporate earnings so that the CEOs, the C-suite could get overpaid, whilst the median wage took six years, the real median wage took six years to get back to the level that it was in 2008. And that is being going to be perpetuated by what we're seeing today. But right here, right now, you know, what we're seeing is things pricing in what looks like an opening up, looks like a the worst is behind us, although in most of the world, most of the world's population, it's not. But we have this kind of very deluded view in, in Europe and the US that, you know, we're quite blinkered. When things start getting back to normality, we go, well, that's the world looking better. And we sort of treat ourselves, you know, that, that we think kind of this is the center of the world, but clearly it's not. Yeah. And I think people of our generation, Generation X, are uniquely vulnerable to that, having grown up in that period of time between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, that magic 21-year 20, uh, period, uh, during which it seemed as though humanity was overcoming all of its problems. And then you get this wake-up call that, you know, history has not, in fact, ended. It was, it was an overblown um, um, kind of feeling of, of health in the economy, which is actually just leverage. It was, you know, as we saw the the real return in the economy fall, we replaced that with debt and we levered up. So in right. the end, you know, a normal family should have had one house of two and a half thousand square foot and a garden and two cars, ended up having three cars and a 5,000 square foot house and, and four or five holders that should never have been getting all yeah. on credit, all on debt. That's kind of where we got to. So we had basically a consumption pattern that was way, way above optimal consumption again. And sort of what is that phrase? But in some ways, we know intuitively that things went way beyond where the natural rhythm should have been. Mm. And again, what we're seeing today is it's a breaking back and a re revealing that the underlying economy was always weak. And this is the key here. A lot of the narrative is about COVID only, particularly what we see in the media. It's not about what the structure of the economy was before this, for the last 10 years. We didn't fix the economy after 2008. Mm. It's been revealed again. So far, the solution has been liquidity and a bit of fiscal. And now we're hoping that everything's back to normal. But what, back to normal to February the 15th or back to normal February the 15th, 1996? Right. No. Yeah, back to which normal? It's, it's an incredibly important point. I actually had a conversation uh, yesterday with Lakshman Asherton uh, from the ECRI, the Economic Cycle Research Institute, who made these important distinctions yesterday uh, between uh, exogenous shocks, uh, cyclicality of the business cycle and the inflation cycle, and then the longer term structural trends. Uh, you know, your point is an important one, which normal? I think that, um, you know, we've been thinking about that and trying to give some context to uh, just where we were uh, on a structural basis and on a cyclical basis coming into this crisis. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the optimal consumption point that you were thinking about, it sort of reminds me of, uh, how, you know, how do you know what the optimal consumption of alcohol is? Well, you only know when you've had too much to drink. And the feeling, uh, it seems, and I think your point is well taken, is that we had had too much to drink. Yes. And, and look, I think what we're seeing right now in the marketplace as well is that we are we're trying to test whether the old regime was broken or whether the old regime is going to reassert itself. And therefore, are we currently seeing markets breaking out from this very short-term regime that asserted itself in the COVID experience? Mm -hmm. And we're gonna go back to the old normals and new normal with a few bells and whistles and a few problems, or did the regime change? And what we're doing here is we're testing, effectively gone to an extreme within this new regime and this will then fail and it'll all reverse back. So this is why I think what happens with the dollar here, it's very important. What we're seeing in, in yields is very important today in terms of trying to evaluate where we are within that, is the regime changed 
or are we going back to the old regime? Roger, you set that up nicely. Let's talk a bit about the dollar. Give us a little bit of a background, a little bit of a primer on the dollar smile. Yeah, so I think, well, I mean, the dollar smile is basically you've got a smile and one extreme is dollar strength where you normally have global markets problems. So you have growth problems, you have issues, you have COVID issues, dollar strength there. And you have dollar strength when you get the US outperforming. We saw this briefly immediately after Trump um, being inaugurated with winning the election, you saw dollar strength there. And in some ways, the dollar milkshake is all about you know the US outperforming, not necessarily going up, but outperforming with the dollar going up. And then dollar weakness. When we've seen dollar weakness over the last 10 years, it's generally not been dollar weakness. It's been other currency strength, high beta currencies. So when you get coordinated global growth, high beta currencies, particularly EMFX, should be outperforming. And I think that what we're seeing right here, I think this was a phrase that was coined by Stephen Lee Jen. Um, he was, he, he's, um, and he was actually talking about this, I think, in the last couple of days, where he said, look, I think we're in the bottom of the smile where we've gone from that sort of risk off bit of dollar strength. I know there's a lot of volatility, obviously, around flows as well a few months ago. We're now into that point where the dollar's traveling through this feeling in the market that we've got coordinated rebound, coordinated strength. We've seen the shift away from the US to other economies starting to do well, other parts of the economy starting to do well. And therefore, the dollar's on the back foot, but it's actually other currencies like the Brazilian rail, so EMFX, the euro, which depends on exports, but it feels like you know, within Europe, industrials are doing well, the oil companies are doing well, the miners are doing well. All those sort of stocks, the inflation growth stocks doing well, dollar's on the back foot. But is that just going to be a move back towards potentially where the US reasserts itself? And what's very interesting about this is if you look at the forecast for GDP in the US, they're quite, you know, the GDP now is actually quite catastrophic, minus 50%. It's by far the worst of any country in any region. But that's partly because one massive consumer, massive service industry, massive shutdown by the historical standards of the US, which try to keep open. But then all the expectations for one year forward is that US will come out of this. So therefore, are we just pricing in kind of, oh my God, the US might actually be worse than we thought and actually everywhere else is getting better. But actually we're now seeing growth coming through, dollar smile kicks in. I think we'll see ourselves move back to one end or the other of the dollar smile, but it's probably gonna be US looking to outperform. Because remember the solvency story is a grind, it's not a shock, it's something which builds over months and even years. And I think that's where we go back to, actually, you know what? People park their money back in the US when this whole fallout reveals itself to be a solvency issue. Yeah, minus 52.8% from the Atlanta Fed. I always chuckle a little bit at the comical precision of these numbers. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, and that's an incredible number um, because I think for Europe and the UK, everyone's sort of thinking it could be between 15 and 20 for Q2. So that US number is, is stunning. Now, you know, the Atlanta Fed now numbers, they are often wildly wrong. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows what all the predictions now, the numbers we've seen are, 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 you know, are now coming out significantly better or significantly worse. A lot of them significantly better because we've now got into that mindset of it's so bad on the number front. But as things get better, you're already starting to see things like the Fed doing less liquidity, the dance of death that we've talked about before. And that could actually see us. And that is, in fact, the trajectory of the Nasdaq has slowed off as the trajectory of the Fed's balance sheet has slowed off as well. Yeah, I think it's 52.8% on an annualized rate. Is that is that right? It's not quarter yeah. over quarter, 52.8% contraction. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, and, does, and does it matter? No, no, they're big, they're big numbers. Yeah, huge, absolutely immense. So Roger, what's your forward outlook on the dollar? So it's still one where I think that the dollar is, if you look at the dollar versus the euro, um, 
it's been effectively an arranged down, grinding down the euro versus the dollar for five or six years, and generally quite a tight range for the last two years. Now, in that, we obviously had a breakout two or three, well, a few weeks ago. We're now basically testing the top of that range. Now, in some ways, you could say this is quite normal. We've seen this for the last two years. So it's been in a range, and the euro is back up to the top of that range. It is actually breaking out a little bit. So 111.25 was top of the range. We've got above 112. But it still feels, given that volatility in FX has been falling, that this is a range-bound market. So I think overall, the the dollar is still it's still within that range. Now, we've got to check that, that maybe something is changing. But at the moment, we can say, OK, testing the top of that range. Positioning is actually quite long, the euro. When you look at things like the net speculative positions, now, these are futures, so there's a long and a short. But net speculative positions have been growing in favor of the euro. Um, most of these sort of positionings are relatively either neutral or negative on the dollar. So I think that overall, we're probably getting to a point where it becomes a bit of a trap. People start getting overly long euros versus the dollar. And actually, we're just still in the range. Um, so I think we're still in a normalized, uh, a normalized environment in that sense. But I still expect to play out over the long term dollar strength, which has been in place versus the euro for five years. I don't see why that should change unless the, the eurozone comes out with something not just the Eurozone, but Europe as a whole, comes out with something phenomenally impressive on the growth front. And yet the growth expectations one year forward for Europe are still significantly below the US, both in pricing and I think in most people's genuine kind of you know, normal expectations. Yeah. Relative to the dollar, any implications for or from the US Treasury market? So the US Treasury is they're breaking out again of, of a similar pattern. So if you look at the US yields versus the EMFX index, the MFX index was consolidating at a low level. It didn't rebound at all. It started rebounding a couple of weeks ago. We pointed out on the show that the, the um, EMFX index was starting to move higher. Yields are starting to move a little bit higher because they're pricing this potential for growth. So it feels like I think there's a little bit more to go there just because of the pattern that we're seeing and the way that we're moving higher. Now, that's obviously going to put pressure on things like gold because real yields versus gold are almost the same chart over the last 10 years. If you map real yields inverted versus gold, if the big, uh, if the headline yields are moving higher, real yields are moving higher as well. So I think that you know, for me, it's a case of this is still a repricing of the liquidity shock, but not a repricing or even a pricing of the solvency shock, which I think is going to come. It's a waiting game, and this is the kind of key here for all of us: is are we traders and trading this? Are we investing in it? Is this a game where I go, okay, I'm missing out on a massive opportunity here, or actually I can wait because I think yields will go lower? And actually, I've now got a better entry point going forwards. My view is we're getting some good, we will get some better entry points. But if you're a trader, you may want to trade it, as in you may want to trade these yields going higher. Yeah, you know, uh, investors priced a three-year note from Amazon at 40 basis points, uh, I think, yesterday. Uh, what does that say, other than the obvious, which is there's no yield to be found anywhere right now? No, and this is the thing, isn't it? The suppression of yield. There's been one trillion of new issuance in the U.S. corporate bond market over the last five months. This is a record level. Um, so everyone has been feeding at the trough, but these are a lot of these companies are going to be the zombie companies. So if zombie companies are feeding at the trough that's been generated by the the U.S. Federal Reserve, these are the companies which are therefore going to make sure that yields remain relatively low. Now we could have VAR shocks. We could have position shocks. One day we're going to worry about inflation because of base effects, which is where you know your low prices that we've had start to come out of the system and roll off. But the reality is that the absolute level of inflation in six months' time will probably be lower than it was six months before. So we're still going to be in a less of an inflation environment that we are in. 
And more importantly, will we have changed growth prospects or the outlook for growth? So what is our forward indicator on inflation expectations? They will still probably be anchored towards the low end of the range. And when people look at that, any growth from CapEx, will I get any growth from? The answer will be no. And so people will go 40 basis points. Yeah, I'll have that. You know, a few basis points over treasuries, even if treasuries are now back at you know, 1%. This is locking in a low trajectory of growth for the foreseeable future because it's effectively taking growth from the future to try and shore up the balances today. You know, Roger, talking about corporate America, um, I watched a really interesting piece on Real Vision uh, yesterday uh, by Steve Clapham. Did you happen to see the piece? I didn't see that one, but I interviewed Steve um, a few months ago, his first time on, and I really enjoyed it when he's talking about forensic accountancy. So what, what, is, what was yeah. he saying? Uh, sort of more on that theme, actually. I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating because, you know, typically finance, in, at least in 2020, is seen as a very exciting subject, high finance, high flying subject. Everyone thinks that uh, accounting is uh, effectively ambient. And uh, Steve Clapton does a great job of connecting the big sort of accounting themes with financial themes, with big, with finance themes, I should say. You know, basically the idea being that if you don't have numbers that are coming out of companies, uh, there's nothing really for us to talk about. And Steve talks about the mechanics of how those numbers work. It's a, a very interesting and very light kind of narrative take on it. I thought it was really charming. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen, you know, as I have to say, I haven't seen it, but I think, you know, what's one of the big things that I'm guessing he's going to be looking at is, is whether valuations matter again because this is one of the big things that we've talked about before is that do valuations matter and it's one of those things where if it's driven by flows as we've seen it doesn't but valuations for certain companies who have been maybe doing dodgy things with their books then it will catch up with you as it did in 2000 to 2003 when we had the big blow-ups and i think back in the thing that i did with with steve he was talking about how the losses for the market for the companies that were found to be fraudulent was close to 500 billion I think he quoted back then, um, he might expect something close to $1 trillion this time around. Now, he doesn't know which companies, but when you get these sorts of busts, you suddenly find that there's a lot of people who have been a little bit uh, dodgy with how they present um, their own cash flows. And cash flows is the one thing that we know is going to come under a lot of pressure in this environment. And I can't imagine that balance sheets will come out of this in any way, in any way shape or form how they were before, or more importantly, how boards you know, CEOs of C-suite, whether they can carry on juicing their shares. Well, they can't if they've gone for bailouts. So you know, there's got to be some change along that front. Yeah, that's uh, exactly on theme. Uh, for Steve Clapham, valuations always matter. And uh, it's an interesting clinic in walking through exactly those numbers. You know, he says things like, you know, could Zoom uh, appreciate dramatically in value? Of course, but I'm comfortable with missing out on that. Uh, by the way, back to that point, uh, Revenue at Zoom uh, this morning, I think, came out up uh, some 170 odd percent from the prior reporting period and doubling net income. So what we're seeing uh, is more of these stocks that are basically the work from home stocks, the digital remote stocks uh, being clearly the beneficiaries of this. Amazon perhaps being the most salient example, but there are others. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, is uh, it's almost like for every uh, for every gain uh, in a stock like Zoom, there's uh, probably commensurate or higher losses in commercial real estate. What are you thinking, Roger, in terms of uh, what's going to happen in the United Kingdom in the commercial real estate space as we come out of this pandemic? Well, I think it's it feels like there's a lot of people who are just going to take the opportunity to work from home, and it doesn't take much. It just takes a marginal change, as I've said before. And a lot of corporates are realizing that they've been paying sky high rent in, in you know, enclosed areas like the city of London, which is quite a small space, and in, in Mayfair. And there's no need to do that. 
And it doesn't mean that people are all going to shut up shop and go home. But what they will do is there is less requirements. And in some ways, maybe here it's, it's a case of can you negotiate with your um, um, with, with the real estate companies, with, with the people to whom you're paying rent? And more importantly, as you see that footfall dropping, does it impact this high density of service industry that you've got in these areas? There's uh, you know a lot of coffee shops in the center of London, uh, a lot of restaurants which are there purely to service things like the city. So these are companies which, or these are businesses which, you know, if you have a 10% change, then they're, non, they're non-starters anymore. So they will not come out of the lockdown in good shape. So I think this is the big change that we will see is that rents will have to be impacted. I've heard some people say, well, actually, you know, maybe people will come back and they'll need same office space, but because, because you'll have, you know, twice as much space per person. But that would assume that people are thinking that COVID is with us for the rest of our lives. We'll work our way around it in the next year or two at the worst. I just think people are working out that they can work from home and they don't need to spend two hours commute and their work, the workplace and their employees can work out that of that two hours commute, maybe one hour can now be working and I don't need to have as much office space. So I think it's got to have a downward impact over the medium and longer term. And I think it's just accelerating a shift that was on the margin already happening. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we're seeing kind of what we were discussing earlier, which is it's a jump function. There's a there's a durable trend that's been in place for a very long time toward digitization, uh, toward uh, basically technologies that can allow us to work from anywhere. And now we have this event that becomes effectively a catalyst for it. Uh, and now you have a jump condition where the change that's been building up sort of beneath the surface breaks out. And uh, it's pretty clear that no one needs to uh, or very few people doing traditional office work need to be at a desk uh, between uh, nine and six every day. Um, it just doesn't make sense anymore in 2020. No, like, I mean, you've probably done it. I've done it. I've been filming you know, in my spare room here for two months and I've actually been more efficient than having to go to the studio. I'm now going back to the studio where we get you know, better picture quality, better sound quality, but the flexibility is reduced because I've got a half hour commute in and out of the office. I can't just pop into my studio and uh, and do a, a shoot with my uh, brick wall behind me. So, you know, that, that's, you know, I, I'm realizing the benefits uh, and very, very clearly, very viscerally that viscerally that actually working from home, I did a lot more. And I did a lot more because all that, you know, all that friction of travel, of, of talking to your workmates over a cup of coffee and maybe having too many coffees, that I don't need to do anymore. So I'm infinitely more, well, not infinitely, but I'm a lot more efficient than I ever was. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a trend that was going to be seen more broadly. One of the things that I saw that was interesting was I was reading uh, about the history of uh, conversion of commercial real estate, especially office space uh, in the 1990s here in New York City uh, into residential uh, real estate development, which would be an interesting theme. Um, you know, so we had potentially have people living uh, in a city. Uh, and uh, taking up some of that uh, office space that's out there. We've talked a lot about the imbalances in the real estate market. People don't want uh, 3,000 square foot houses, uh, you know, 50 miles to the west of New York City. Millennials especially want to be nearer to town. Perhaps this is an opportunity to make that happen. Yeah, th- there'll always be a balance. And I think this is one of the things we've talked about is these are small changes. We're not going to suddenly see ghost towns. We're not going to see a sudden surge of people because, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's – particularly in the UK, it's not a very liquid market. It takes six months to to sell a property, generally. So these are slow moves, but we'll see some people at the margins of the high expensive regions will probably feel a little little bit of downward pressure. I think last month, 1.7% down in the UK property market, one of the biggest drops in, I think, 10 years uh, in a single month. So it's happening, um, but it's a marginal change. And I think where it really impacts, as I say, on, on this concentration 
of, of shops and services within places like the city of London, some of the high concentration areas within New York City as well, they will probably return, they will lose some of the vibrancy because the city of London has become more and more vibrant. And I think it will lose a little bit of that. But already, because in London, residential areas moved out further and further east through the city of London, I think you're right, it will probably become a different use, become more residential. Maybe we see, see some of the cheaper housing coming back to some of the areas which historically and, and more recently have become overpriced. Yeah. Roger, to pivot, to pivot back to uh, capital markets and get back to your thesis that you uh, explained earlier, what are you going to be looking for uh, going forward based on your outlook? So I've been looking at the same things. One is, you know, right now we've got to look at these currencies because we've had this decent move in the dollar. Um, and it's the emerging market currencies, which I've said all along, they were the ones that moved two weeks ago, well, much, much earlier than this move in inflation and growth that we're seeing now. They started this move. We've seen a bit of obviously the move in the euro. So I want to see how they, they move. Are they going to continue with this momentum or is this just a short term move, effectively a bounce from being oversold or the dollar versus them being overbought? So that's number one. Commensurate with that, we're also seeing this rebound in banks. So the Eurozone banks have been breaking out. And I think I mentioned that the SX70 Eurozone banks looks exactly like the JP Morgan Emerging Market FX Index over the last five years because they've both got lots of debt. So right here, we're seeing a bounce in that off the lows. So we're getting to 38% retracements. I want to see how far these things go because I think that these will run out of steam somewhere around 38 to 50% retracement. Um, those bond yields are moving, but they how far can they move? Because we've seen bond yields regularly try and break higher, but the demand for bonds is one of the key areas. And then there's one other area which I'm still looking at now, which I think is quite an interesting one, is that in the currency market, there is this um, basically how much it costs you to swap yen into dollars or euros into dollars. And this move from being quite expensive to swap, I cost a lot to try and get hold of dollars, to reversing the other way aggressively when the Fed opens its swap lines in March. Now, the yen and the euro version have come all the way back to flat and back into negative territory, which means they have to pay once more to get hold of dollars. It's still within the range of the last few years, but it's generally grinding lower. So I'm going to watch this, that whilst we're seeing dollar going higher, we're seeing funding costs for swapping yen, swapping euros, actually moving against you know, euros and yens in favor of basically the dollar again. So this is why one of the reasons why I'm watching those, because I still think that this is just a rebound within ranges, slightly widening out the ranges um, in things like the euro, the DXY. But overall, I still think that that is the play. And if I start to see these basis trades moving aggressively or these cross-currency basis uh, positions starting to move aggressively again, then I want to start getting back to being long the dollar and short currencies. And I think that will be another story to this. Because remember, one of the other parts of all of this is that a weaker dollar loosens global financial conditions and becomes a tailwind for all types of risk, particularly those, those growth stocks. So these are all two parts of effectively the same trade. So I want to watch if this is an early warning system in this uh, cross-currency basis. Interesting point, Roger, and we can leave it on a tactical note. Well said. No problem at all. Good to speak to you again. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.